0: this is Mark Marshall with Anatomy of Tone. Thank you for joining me for episode five. In this episode we're going to discuss the negative effects of self judgment as well as dig into the concept of using strong beats to create resolution for your solos and melody lines. I'll discuss how to deal with backline guitar amps when you're stuck with an amp that isn't as optimal as you would like and we'll feature the T's RMC picture wah with audio examples using guitar keyboards and bass. I would like to mention that all the composition. The you hear in this podcast are composed and performed by me. Let's jump in. Self-judgment could be a real hindrance in our own progress, whether it's in songwriting or soloing or even just trying to get better at playing our instrument or learn how to engineer or mix. It just is this voice that really is not productive and doesn't help you at all. I've had issues with it myself over the years and I've seen a lot of people really suffer and get stifled from it. I really feel it's important to, I don't know, have as much of an unbiased opinion about whatever you're doing. If you're writing a song or you're producing a new song or you're learning a new guitar solo or whatever creative endeavor you're involved in. I think trying to mute that voice that's saying you're not good enough or this sucks or uh, you're never going to get this is just counterproductive. It actually, I feel, blocks you from your progression. I have tried a lot in recent years to mute that voice as much as possible and approach whatever I'm working on with as little self-judgment as I can. Now, I'm not saying I'm not looking for ways to improve what I'm doing or sometimes don't feel like something wasn't my best work. But... I tend to look at it a little differently, I tend to look at it, well for one, with compositions, if I write something that maybe wasn't my favorite piece, I follow it through, I finish it, I don't judge it early on or say this song sucks or it's not my best piece, I treat it equally, I follow it through, I finish it, and then I can look at it and I can realize that well, there were other maybe important things I need to get from that. and. Maybe the most important factor wasn't that this was my best composition. Maybe I was working out a new concept and a new type of harmony. And you have to get under the hood and mess with things a little bit before you can really get them in your vocabulary. So this idea that everything you do all the time has to be magic and special is a little, I don't know, it's a, its a bit of a fantasy and I'm not sure where that was created or who created that idea or planted that seed that is this mystical thing that happens that, um, the greatest musicians or artists, they only pick up their instrument or write and, and magical things come out. And that's the only thing that happens. Like, Everybody works at their craft and it is a craft. You do have to spend time and you have to try things and you have to fail and you have to then try them again and experiment and take things apart and put them back together. It requires a lot of, you know, elbow grease. And in that process if you're if you're being too harsh on yourself or judging things you're not really like looking at it from i feel like a healthy analytical manner so if i do a gig and it didn't go great in the past i'd really like take it to heart and i'd beat myself up and i was the worst thing blah blah. and sometimes people come up to me and be like that was a great show and i'd be like oh you know i wasn't playing my best like I learned a while ago, like never to say that to somebody, you know, somebody is saying you did a great show. You just say, thank you. I really appreciate that. Don't ruin it for them. Don't insult them thinking they came up to you thinking that this is the best and you're telling them that they're wrong. So I had to squish that habit. And then, you know, I just realized that if I just thought about the show and thought about what went wrong and I was analytical about it in the sense of being like, okay, well, how do I fix that next time? What went well and what what wasn't the best and how do I approach advancing that? And again, treating it like a craft, not treating it like it's magic. Uh, So... I try to treat every composition, everything I'm working on with understanding that I'm always going to be growing and I want to be growing. I don't want to stifle that side of myself that's going to make me feel bad for making mistakes or growing. And sometimes I feel, see people get stuck because they become afraid to take chances. They become afraid to sound bad and they essentially don't grow because they're cycling on the same thing. So many of the great artists and musicians that I've worked with have been very fortunate to be around some legendary musicians and artists. And one of the things I've noticed is consistently is that everybody's always working on their craft. And I've heard really revered musicians sound, you know, okay at rehearsal and trying to figure it out it's not always magic. And I don't mean that in like a negative way. I mean, they're human and everybody's trying to figure their stuff out. Now when they figure it out, they're able to execute it on an extremely high level, but that doesn't mean that they're not taking chances. And there's not moments where they don't sound their best, or they might hit a wrong note, or they might try a drum fill and it doesn't work out the way that they thought, because that is the creation and the trial process of making music. And everybody goes through that. So I would encourage you as you're working on your projects, whether it's playing guitar, bass, drums, singing, producing, songwriting, to step away from the judgment factor. Remove from your vocabulary. That sucks. That's not good enough. You know, I'm never gonna be able to do that. Don't start a conversation to show a song to somebody or friend and say, Well, I don't really know about this or it's not very good or just let it be, you know, be vulnerable. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to not be at your best by being vulnerable and being open. You're actually allowing yourself the space to be able to continually grow and get to new places that you'd have never gotten to before. And this in the long run will help prevent burnout. And you from getting stifled because you're not putting up any walls and feel the fewer walls that you can put up in the arts the better off you're going to be <laughs> When i was a young musician i didn't really have a lot of music mentors around and the one mentor i had around it was a fairly a destructive situation with a a narcissist and it was um complicated and didn't really end up giving me a lot of insight into a lot of the aspects of music that i needed or wanted so it took some years for me to be around some other people that were able to guide me and so sort of give me tips and um, and advice that uh, that I was seeking. One of the things I wish I had learned was the concept of strong and weak beats. Now, I was taking drum lessons for a short period of time with a really wonderful drum teacher who was a really great mentor, but that only lasted a couple of years and he taught me how to read music, and we got into some early swing music. Uh, And he did teach me a little bit about strong and weak beats, but only from the perspective of drums. And I should have, maybe in retrospect, been able to connect that to harmony and soloing and melody, but I really didn't until years later. So after those drum lessons, I hadn't really studied with anybody for a number of years until I moved out of Pennsylvania. I was self-taught, uh, pretty isolated. I couldn't drive because I had a, um, a vision disability that wouldn't allow me to drive in an area where you couldn't get anywhere without a car. And YouTube didn't exist. And so I was um, you know fairly isolated with teaching myself piano and drums and guitar and bass. And there were some things that, although I think I had some really good experiences being creative and experimental in those times, there was definitely some knowledge that I feel could have saved me a lot of struggle and um, and you know, running into walls and feeling stuck. One of the tips I wish I would have had exposure to or somebody would have shared with me when I was younger was the idea of strong and weak beats when it comes to developing melody with harmony. In the classical world, we tend to think of the strong beats as being one and three. And so for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to stick to that because our ears, a lot of times hear beats one and three is being melodically the, the strongest beats. They have the most weight to them. So if you play something that melodically clashes on beats one and three, it's gonna stick out a lot more than if you play them on beats two and four. So what does this mean? This means in a lot of genres of music, that we put a lot of emphasis on making sure that there's consonants on beats one and three. Now this doesn't apply to every form of music like free jazz or Certain types of atonal music. Uh, this I'm speaking more in the sense of like Western tonal music and pop music, rock music. All, all these forms of music tend to abide by that rule. I think even subconsciously that we hear beats one and three wanting to have some sort of consonance or resolution to them. What does this mean when you're writing melodies or you're trying to solo over a song? Well. It means that if we're using a scale to play over a song, then on beats one and three, it's going to be pretty important that we're playing a chord tone there. That way the note matches the chord because our ears are going to hear those as being resolution points. So on beats two and four, there's a lot more flexibility when it comes to playing notes that may be dissonant or have rub to them to create a little bit of that tension and release. But it's often... Uh, pretty important to release the tension on beats one and three this is something we learn when we study classical composition or counterpoint Uh, the the whole idea is a a lot about uh, uh, tension release and where you can add dissonance and and where consonance needs to be how you get into a dissonance how you get into a consonance there's a lot of rules if you're following strict series counterpoint about how you can approach this now you don't have to completely study serial counterpoint to get some usage out of this. One way to think about it is if you're playing a scale or a chord, let's just take a C chord. It's simple because it has no sharps or flats. So a C chord has three pitches in it, if we're just talking about a C triad, C, E, and G, and it's built from the C scale, which is C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. So now if we look at the scale and we look at the chord, the chord is built from the scale but let's just look at those three notes in the chord c e g so on beats one and three it's going to sound the most resolved if we play c e or g from the c major scale so if we match one of the notes from the scale with the notes that are in the chord matchmaker it's going to make sense right that they're they're going to sound the most resolved because they're matching each other if you happen to play um, a d uh, on beat one or beat three is not necessarily going to sound bad because again, remember this is taste and about tension, but for a lot of, at least, I uh, don't know, a, a standard way that you want to think is that if you play D on beat one, it's going to have more tension than if you play D on beat two playing like an E note or a C or a G note on beat one is going to have a sense of resolution as in beat three. This is where people mix up how to use scales a lot. So if you have a chord and somebody plays a scale over it, they'll often know what's in the C scale, but they don't know how to resolve notes and have those points of resolution or where to put them. So I do have some students that have gotten the hang of understanding, okay, well, uh, let's match the scale to the chord. Okay, I can do that, but then they are not able to phrase it in a way that they're landing on on strong beats. Uh, I just saw a pretty cool uh, article about Barry Harris, who was one of the great jazz instructors and just a, a walking encyclopedia of music, had some techniques that he would use even for doing scale runs and adding a few chromatic notes that would allow him in running down a scale to land on the consonant tones on the strong beats just by adding a few, you know, um, chromatic notes in specific targeted areas. And this isn't just important for soloing, it's important for developing melody lines too. It'd be really interesting if you study a lot of melody lines, see how often it happens that the strong beats land on a consonant tone, meaning a pitch that is in the chords, a chord tone. You'll be surprised. Now. I don't mean to imply that this is like a hard and steady rule, because like anything, genre, you know, time period, there's a lot of things that um, can can vary our choices uh, to match the genre or the style that we're playing. But more often than not, you will find this is the case, and if you know how to approach music this way, you're going to have a much easier time controlling your dissonances and cr- controlling you the way that you resolve notes, and things will just sound... I think overall better, you'll be able to weave a story a little more clearly when you have control over it rather than just randomly playing. So I think one thing that's important to do is when you're matching a chord to a scale, you're going to want to look at that scale and you want to see where the chord tones are, the safe notes and a number of ways that you can kind of say this, right? It's like the the places that you, if you touch, you can't get tagged it, right? So those are the, the root third and fifth, most often root third, fifth, seventh, if it's a, we're talking about seventh chords, or it can be the same for ninth chord, 11th chord, 13th chord. The idea is that we're playing a chord tone on beats one and three. So this does require learning a bit of music theory, and making sure that you're really solid with knowing the notes on the guitar neck. And in another episode, I will get deep into how mu- how important I feel it was for me to learn the notes on the guitar neck. Maybe one of the most important things I learned and really made the instrument um, accessible and just set me free. It's important to know that to really be effective at uh, matching chord tones on strong beats. I think just that little bit of information could have saved me so much frustration over the years because I would be playing modes uh, or, or just different scales, you know, diminished scales, automatic scales. I think just that little bit of info would have saved me so much frustration over the years. I really feel like I, you know, just struggled a bit throughout time on... I'm just having good resolution or good sense about how to use modes or scales. I knew what the scales were. Uh, I knew what were, was in chords. It was even in like high school when they were making me take a bunch of study classes because they didn't know what to uh, to do with me. They kind of just wrote me off and gave me the lamest classes because I wasn't in college prep. And so I, I would bring theory books in and I would study them and I would study chords and chord shapes. Somehow I didn't make that connection it was like right in front of my face, but I just didn't make that connection. And it just sort of saved me a lot of time because it's like, and I found this with some students that come to me, they do know chords and they know scales, but they're missing this connector to bring them both together. And in jazz, we call those chord scales. Uh, But just knowing what the chord scales are, isn't enough. The idea of of having control over the, the strong and weak beats is another thing that just, Allows you to harness power and control over your improvisation and your composition by knowing this. Like you can essentially improvise something in a manner that people will think that it's fully composed because of your your resolution points. I'm going to play through a few examples using a Martin HD28. The first example, I'm going to play a G chord and I'm going to play an ascending G scale with the chord tones landing on the strong beats one and three. The next example is going to be the same G chord and a G scale, but with um, non consonant tones landing on the strong beats one and three. I'm gonna do a little solo over a G chord vamp. And in this example, I'm gonna focus on landing on consonant chord tones on the strong beats one and three. Last example, I'm going to focus on playing non-consonant tones over the chords on the strong beats of one and three so we can hear how it doesn't resolve as nicely. I think you can hear from those two soloing examples where the first one using the consonant pitches on the strong beats had more of a almost like a a punctuation effect right it felt like sentences and a statement and the second example avoiding any consonant tones on beats one and three felt incomplete or kind of leaves you hanging. And I wouldn't say that all the pitches sounded bad in the second soloing example with the non-consonant tones on beats one and three, but it didn't always sound good. And so my point is that you really have to think about how you're going to paint with those colors that aren't resolved on beats one and three. And so if you're just meandering around hitting any notes, it's gonna be a lot harder to frame your story, right? Or know how you're using a question mark versus a period versus an exclamation point. So having control over this really allows you to frame your story for your solo. This week, we're going to check out the Tease RMC Picture Wah. Now, the Picture Wah is a recreation of the Thomas Organ Company's 1967 Clyde McCoy Picture Wah. This is a really special wah in the history of wah pedals. It was Italian made. And now Thomas Organ did actually make pedals both in Italy and the United States. Although the circuit design was the same, the components used in each of them varied a little bit. And the ones that really are considered desirable are the Italian made ones. So Jeffrey Tees spent a lot of time researching and, and figuring out how to meticulously recreate this sound. And it took him as far as him meeting with the original designer of the Wawa and and uh, various other peoples at the companies that were manufacturing them to understand all the nuances that went into doing it. Uh, and he even was managed to take apart uh, a rare Wawa to, to really get all the values and figure out how to reproduce that sound. So we're immediately, we're talking about a pedal maker that didn't just approximate a sound, he went way deep into it and really he's like the world leading expert on wah-wahs. I really don't know if there's anybody that has a deeper understanding of the origins and now the variations and the intricacies of how to get that sound. When I received my picture wah from RMC, I was really excited about it for a couple of different reasons. I've been searching for a long time for a wah that I would really love. I love the sound of wah-wah in theory, but every wah I had, I just wasn't super stoked about the way it sounded. I tried the Vox wahs and it just seemed like they tend to be a little thin and throw was too long on them, meaning they went from being too bassy to too bright. The Dunlops, I think, are reasonably well-made pedals. They're good. They were sweeter than the Vox, but they also... Had a funny mid-range buildup, I think somewhere around 600 hertz or uh, between like thousand hertz. Something that just sounded, I don't know, not rich to me and a little thin in its own way, but not as spiky uh, or low in resonance as the box. I tried some custom shop WAs with some, well, pretty good inductors in them. Uh, one that was made out of aluminum but the aluminum started to fall apart. And that wall also seemed to be a little inconsistent with different amps. And sometimes I was using it. It just seemed to be very spiky. So using it without a compressor seemed to be a little bit of an issue because of it felt like the volume variances between the the heel down and the toe up. So it wasn't optimal. Um, And I didn't end up using it as much as I would like because it just... Oh no, it didn't sound great all the time. So I was just always on the search for it and I kind of almost giving up and just being like, okay, I'm just going to use the WAS I have. Probably just wasn't using waw that much uh, until I started researching and found Tease, who's been making WAS since 1994. So he's been at this a long time and I had never had one. So I don't know really I know how I missed that. And I'm sure there's probably some of you out there that despite how many years he's been making was that you didn't really know about his presence in the the community so it was a great find i highly encourage you to check out his website is that an amazing page of history on there some of the features that i was really stoked about with the rmc picture wah was the fact that it's fuzz friendly he's using some circuitry that was developed by fox rocks in it that basically sent makes the output friendly with vintage style fuzz pedals this is really important because any of you that are into say like old germanium fuzz faces or germanium tone benders old fuzz Circuits are a little cranky with what signal they see coming into them. They often like to be the first thing in your signal chain, just likes to be guitar, pick up interaction right into the fuzz pedal. So you put anything before it and things start to get a little weird. And not weird in like a fun, creative way, weird in a non usable and non flattering way. Anytime I wanted to use a, a wah with my tone benders or my uh, sun faces from Analog Man, it just didn't fly, it didn't work. And I was always bummed out about this. So. I was excited to see that Tease had a solution for this and the fact that I was going to be able to use a wah running into the fuzz, I must admit that I was still a tad skeptical only because of all the pedals I've had, but I got it and plugged it in and it was—it sounds phenomenal with all the germanium fuzz pedals I have, it's, it's just really, really works and I was blown away by that and also look when i got it and took it out of the box i mean it took me about a minute to just be completely in love with the pedal it sounds so good the sweep range of it it's the highs are uh, bright but and silky but not harsh the low range is deep but um but not muddy or woofy. And then the mid-range is rich and vocal uh, without it sounding weird in the way that I felt like the Dunlop was do. It just right from the get-go, I just knew that this pedal was built by somebody who had an understanding of how the original sounded uh, in a way that others hadn't. It's just clear the research that went into it, and I would just say that he's, you know, Jeffrey Teese is a connoisseur of of wahs He's a, an expert. The fuzz-friendly circuitry isn't at all, I mean, It's amazing the the thoughtfulness that he put into correcting some of the other problems that we experience with Wawa's. For instance, there's a RMI, EMI filter in it. It's a passive filter circuitry that basically eliminates the interference from radio stations. Any of us that have used a a Wawa know that if you're too close to anything that's picking up radio stations, like I used to rehearse uh, near 34th Street in Manhattan, uh, the Empire State Building has a radio antenna on it, so when I kicked a wah-wah on, it would pick up the radio stations and it was really annoying when you were in rehearsal and if you're playing kind of a, a ballad kind of song, it would just, it was not pleasant. So the fact that this is uh, doesn't pick up any kind of radio frequencies is amazing. And it also happens to be low noise. That was one of the comments I immediately got from another guitar player on a rehearsal I was on for a band I play in, which is called Silvertooth Cactus. We're actually playing at Arlene's Grocery on June 23rd. We're releasing a new vinyl, so we're rehearsing for that. And I brought this, and it's a like a, a hard rock band, and uh, we use Wawa a lot. And the first comment from the other guitar player I was like, "Wow, that." I'm impressed with how quiet that is. It's not picking up a lot of noise. Somehow he's found a way that to, to make it a lot more quieter, which is fascinating. Also, the pots are sealed, so you don't have to worry about cleaning them or getting them dirty. And that may seem like a small thing, but almost every wall I've owned Within a few weeks or so, has gotten some dust in the pot. And no matter what you could do, you can't get it out. Even I've tried cleaning it, spraying it, doing everything, and to be recording, and there'll be a spot in the wall where you just hear that crackle. It would drive me nuts because I record a lot. And so those tiny little details really come out a lot, and you'll hear them forever because every time you listen to the song, it's not like a one time live performance, like that's etched in stone. So it was very frustrating to me. Jeffrey Teese has eliminated that from being a problem, which I'm super stoked about. He also has found a way to attenuate the power circuit in it. If you use an alkaline battery with the picture wah, the attenuator steps down the power output of the battery a little, so it emulates the power output of, like, say, a cheaper battery or the power of battery that would have been used in 1967 in the vintage was. So the circuitry and everything operates exactly like it did too much power in a lot of pedals fuzz and waz will often result in what people would say is like a brighter sound a more harsh sound harshness so keeping the output lower sweetens the sound a bit so whether you're using the battery or you're plugging in the nine volt power supply the Tis also has the option for nine volt power it steps down both of those so they whether you're plugging in the, the power cable or the battery It takes them both down to say like vintage style power output so as you can see there's a lot of thoughtfulness that went into this to i think ensure that the vintage tone is achieved but also make it more flexible for modern uses i honestly really couldn't believe how good this wah sounded it was immediately instant gratification it was the wah that I've always wanted. I've tried it through a variety of amps, including Vox, Marshall Plexis, Black Panel Fenders, Tweed Fenders, Blues Juniors, and Irana Henry, which is based on a Tweed Deluxe. And it sounded fantastic with every amp, which doesn't always happen with wah Sometimes you'll find that a wah-wah works better with a Marshall, let's say a JCM-style Marshall. And it doesn't play as well with a, a black panel or a silver panel Fender. Uh, it, and sometimes even with pickups, it can vary. One wah sounds great with humbuckers, but doesn't excel with single coils. So I've just plugged in less Pauls and Stratocasters, Telecasters, Dan Electros. Like ES335s, so, you know, I've, I've I've plugged in everything to it, and it's I'm impressed with how much it's responding to every instrument. It just really seems like he hit the nail on the head perfectly with this pedal. I know it sounds like I'm really trying to sell you on this pedal. I really strive hard to find gear that I really love and I think is special and talk about it. So I don't just get any pedals and turn them around so that I have content to talk about. I'm really trying to talk about gear and sounds and that I'm excited about and inspired by. So it's not like I feel like this is just another pedal that I'm trying to um, hype up. It really is to me an incredible pedal. And I've had this experience with a few pedals not that many really when i think of this level of of sound quality there's a few that i think have really stuck out as being really special and 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 raises the bar so much but this T's picture wah is definitely one of those the rmc picture wah is a full size wah and full weight meaning it's not a half or a mini wah and it's not made of aluminum casing it turns out that i don't love the feel of lightweight was So I did try an aluminum cased waw, which I mentioned started to fall apart. And it just didn't feel great to play under your foot. It, uh, it just felt a little flimsy and it wasn't as easy to interact with. I like the idea of the weight being lighter for touring and fly dates, but it just didn't feel right. And the same thing I feel about the mini waws from Dunlop. I don't love the throw range on them. And I don't love how your foot fits on them. So I think if you're playing like just a, a part once in a while that has Wawa and you're not that concerned or not really interacting a lot with the Wawa, then it's probably fine. You know, if you're trying to travel light and don't want to take up a lot of space. But if you really interact with the Wawa a lot, and want to be more nuanced with it i really feel like having a wawa that has some weight to it and is full size is really important to really have more detail available to you to to play with the the rocker and heel down and toe up and the variations in between let's listen to some examples for this first example i'm going to use a fender stratocaster with fsc 59 pickups in it that's going to run into the rmc picture wah and that's going to go into a victoria 35 115 tweed amp which is the fender pro tweed circuit Second example, I'm going to use the same guitar and amp and wah, but I'm going to place a Analog Man Sunface 2N. It's a germanium Sunface after it so we can hear how the wah wah interfaces with the fuzz with the wah coming first. <laughs> I'm going to use a 52 reissue telecaster equipped with voodoo 52 pickups that's going to run into the rmc picture wall which then is going to go into the headstrong little king weaver the little king is basically a 1964 black panel princeton weaver you may be wondering how the rmc picture wah would sound plugged with a les paul straight into a marshall plexi so this next example uses a les paul standard with voodoo 59 pickups in it which goes right into the rmc picture wah goes right into a plexi svh20 now this amp i do have the channels jumped so i'm getting a little more gain out of it to use the rmc picture wah in an example where i was using it more in the sense of a very slow filter uh, i didn't want to use a phaser or any other kind of device to do this because i wanted to have control over the timing of it and also how far or how little I was rocking the pedal and opening up I guess essentially like the, the filter sound of it. So this example uses a Dan Electro DC-59 with Gemini lipstick pickups in it, run into the RMC picture Wah, which then goes into a Vox AC-15. I've been talking a lot about how I find it incredibly important that the swas have the option to be fuzz friendly, but there are also those of you out there that like to run your WAWA after distortion or fuzz devices. I wanted to do a couple examples where I demonstrate what the picture wah sounds like in that position. So I'm going to place a Vic Audio 72 Ram's head before it, which is basically like a 72 Ram's head Big Muff. It's my favorite Big Muff circuit. A lot of the copies and even the electroharmonic versions now, they, they always sound a little harsh to me. I always find them very hard to dial in with the EQ, but the Ram's Head from Vic Audio. Is just a lot more i would say just sweet and it has a cool eq knob on it that you could you could bring in some mid-range if you so want it because sometimes the big muffs can be a bit scooped sounding anyway it's a smaller footprint pedal and i really like it so uh, i'm going to use an, an es335 with voodoo 59 pickups in it into the Vic Audio ram's head into the rmc picture wah into a vox ac15 <laughs> For this last guitar example i decided to very slowly open up the wah-wah almost using it like a lo-fi effect like a speaker effect as the example progresses you're going to hear me start to accentuate certain notes in the phrase by pushing the wah-wah like toe forward. So I'm just thinking about this and the variations that you can create with a melodic line where you're using the wah-wah to just bring out almost like accents in uh, in a phrase. a Yamaha Reface CP with no onboard effects so I'm just using the clavinet sound and I'm running that into the Tease picture wah which then goes into a effectrode tube drive and into a surfy bear metal spring reverb so all analog signal chain that is running into API preamps and all the effects you're hearing are outboard so the only thing I'm doing is generating the uh, clavinet sound from the Yamaha ReFace CP, similar to what I would do if I was using the Arturia or Keyscape uh, clavinets. I would use these outboard effects to make them sound more authentic. Now I'm going to use the Yamaha Reface CP, but with the Wurlitzer sound, I'm again, not using any onboard effects and I'm running through the same signal chain, except on the right hand part, the cores, I'm also running that through an analog man, ARDX analog delay that uh, just gives a little more space and vibiness to it. I decided to run the analog ARP2600M through the picture Wah just to hear how we can do some live sound shaping and manipulation. Now there is a filter on the ARP2600, but it sounds a little different and also you can't do the hands free and as dramatic as, um, as sweeps as you can with a pedal on the floor so uh, it, it's a little bit of a different effect if you're using a physical wah with the arp or a synth instead of just using the filter or even setting it up so that uh, the notes trigger the filter so this is a, a slightly different experience the, the curve of the the sweep and um and just the hands-free operation doing with your feet i think offers up different uh, kinds of performances and expression <laughs> Thank This example uses a Fender Bass-6 with a heavy guitar pick, run into the RMC picture wah into an Analog Man Sunface BC-108, which is the silicone style fuzz face, and then it goes into a vintage 1972 Ampeg V-48 amplifier. And then into uh, the aux, and I'm using a 4x12 cabinet with with Celestian Vintage, uh, actually Greenback 25s. And then that goes into uh, my API preamps and a Purple Audio MC77. I was curious how the RMC Wa would sound with a bass with active pickups, so I'm using a early nineties Warwick FNA five string bass with active pickups I'm slapping into the picture wah that goes into the ampeg you enjoyed this walkthrough of the Tees rmc picture Wah. you can visit their website at real if you've been enjoying this podcast please hit the subscribe button leave a review follow me on whatever distribution network that you're using for your podcasts it would help me out i will see everybody next week for episode six